Here's All the Stones by Blitzen Trapper, a Patagonia Music benefit track for S-O-L-V. Slept inside the flatbed of a truck. Introducing Patagonia Music, exclusive songs from your favorite bands to raise money for environmental activism. Search Patagonia Music on iTunes or download the free Patagonia Music iPhone app and you can stream the Dirtbag Diaries wherever you roam. Patagonia Music. Buy a song, benefit the environment. Learn more at patagonia.com music. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. Okay, so who remembers those bizarre pixelated 3D puzzles that were popular back in the 90s? Remember those? They were this like collection of, of tightly registered dots and you'd stare at it, burn a hole in it to it with your eyes, and eventually all of a sudden this 3D image would appear out of nowhere, out of this seemingly random collection of dots, supposedly. As hard as I tried, I could never make out those images, but the people around me, they seemed to have no problem. And the thing that would really annoy me was once a person saw the first image, their eyes would start to adapt. They could see the next one faster. And the one after that, they would recognize almost instantaneously. It drove me nuts. Where I saw just random, seemingly disconnected dots, other people saw a complex relationship. For them, all they had to do was glance at the randomness, and it had meaning, form, and structure. The first time I sat around a climber's campfire at the age of 19, I was surrounded by people who felt monumentally older than I was. Five, even ten years older. That was ancient. These people had careers. They had marriages, even children. And yet, I could sense, even though I perceived them as different, we were all connected by something. Something that held us together. I'd spent much of my life always on the outskirts of social groups. Sitting around that campfire, it was the first time I felt a sense of belonging. Of community. As I grew and shaped myself in the climber I dreamed of being, it became easier to sense this group. When Camp 4 was filled in the valley, I could drive around the RV campground, the pines, and find the other climber, the other wanderer who would let me crash if I gave him a few beers or cooked a meal. I could exchange knowing glances at rest stops or recognize the telltale mud streaks on cars blazing down I-5 to and from adventures. My eyes could see the network. It's still amazing to me that 15 years later, this community... It's just gotten tighter. Now it extends well beyond the climbers, to the conservationists, to the anglers, to the adventurers, to the, well, anyone who understands dawn light. And these people, they hold me up, they support me, and for that, I am eternally grateful. But getting into the spider web network can be difficult, even if you know it exists. It takes meeting one person, the right person, or the right group of people, before you immediately get it. For a while, we wanted to do a story about that first moment, when the random becomes connected, when you finally see those dots come together into something coherent, when the community of adventurers, the dreamers, the vagabonds, and the thinkers becomes clear. Today, we present You Are Not Alone, two stories from women, one a climber, one a wanderer, and a creator, who found a community in the moment when it mattered the most. In the instant, when they needed support in the greatest way, it appeared out of the ether. Gather round. I'm Fitzcahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. 
January of 2008, Rachel Greenberg traveled by herself to Patagonia to climb for eight weeks. The dusty, wind-raked streets of El Chaltan, the village come climbing him and nestled below the impeccable granite of Fitzroy and Saratoy, was the place to be at the time. There was a strong American contingent, and Rachel easily found partners, successfully summoning Poinsonot and attempting Fitzroy. Within days, she met Anna Pfaff and Jean Riddle, and together they made plans to climb St. Exuperate. We were really excited to do an all-female ascent on this really awesome route, and the approach involved walking across a talus field, which was a little looser than the average talus field, but it was a talus field, you know, you, you walk across those all the time. And I was just hiking up, like my head was down, like really focused on where I was stepping and a step so not to as dislodge boulders and um, Jean was in front of me and she stepped on this tiny rock and then I stepped on this tiny rock and as soon as I stepped on this tiny rock these huge boulders just dislodged like a couple feet above me so there was no way to get out of the way and they just rolled like on top of me. I remember like screaming at the top of my lungs like when it happened and then like hyperventilating for a while afterwards and Jean was like trying to calm me down and there was an immense amount of pain at first for the first 10 or so minutes and then once like the reality of my situation set in um, all my adrenaline kicked in and I kind of stopped feeling pain. The nearest hospital was a five-hour drive from El Chaltan. The tiny town was 12 miles from the accident site about six miles of nice trail, followed by six miles of rugged trail, crisscrossing a glacier, moraines, and rivers. There was even a Tyrolean traverse. They were an hour hike away from an established base camp where there were a dozen other climbing parties. We decided that, well, they made a splint first out of like a foam pad and some ski poles for my leg. We didn't really know the extent of the injuries. We just knew that I couldn't walk. And then we decided that Jean would go back to camp to get more help, and Anna would stay with me, and I would start, like, crab walking down the boulder field. But the climbers at base camp already knew something was amiss. It was very loud, the rockfall incident and my screams, and they were heard in base camp. And a couple of people there immediately knew something was wrong. Within an hour, like, two or three other climbers showed up, and they were both EMTs. Um, we decided to just kind of, like, wait and... Till we could get more bodies there to like help carry me because this crab walking thing wasn't really working that well. Within a couple more hours, um, these Colombian climbers showed up and these we had kind of hiked in with them earlier and they had helped us cross this stream. So we knew their faces and so they started building a stretcher out of the rope. While they waited for the stretcher to be built, Anna and another woman, Nikki, kept Rachel comfortable and laughing. They made a better splint and rebandaged her wounds. After a few hours, they were ready to start moving Rachel down the mountain. I got on the stretcher and the stretcher was like, well, it was like a hammock, so it wasn't very firm. And it was like kind of scary being carried in it because um, the terrain is really rugged. Like rocks are like moving and three guys on each side are like holding this, this stretcher and I don't weigh that much, but it's, it's dead weight. And uh, it was pretty hard work and... Like, I felt like I was going to tumble out, like, a couple times. And it took forever to, like, travel that way. As the party trekked towards base camp, they ran into a ranger. The ranger radioed to town to say that they were going to need more bodies. 
and also to check on a helicopter. But as they were began moving Rachel, she could hear there were mixed promises about the helicopter. I was hearing various things from like, um, the helicopter pilot's on vacation, so no helicopter, or the helicopter's broken. She wasn't too worried about getting out that night. Thought I like had a minor break, you know? I didn't think anything was that ba- bad, badly wrong with me, because I wasn't in that much pain. Like, I was like kind of cheery, which was surprising. So I was like, oh, well, maybe I can just spend another night out here. Like, it won't be that bad. By the time the rescue party made it to the base camp, their on-the-fly created stretcher had nearly fallen apart, so they made another. And the Slovenian climbers, they came in, they were around, and they built this, like, amazing stretcher out of, like, ski poles and, like, the rope, and it was, like, way firmer. It was, like, a real stretcher. And they strapped me in there, and they're like, all right, we're going to start carrying you out. And a radio call came in that a helicopter was going to be flying in, and The Argentine army flew in and uh, landed right on the glacier in this massive helicopter and everyone just like threw me in the helicopter and once I got in the helicopter I started to get really scared because like the adrenaline had kind of worn off and I was just like oh no what is going on with me where am I going I'm really glad that I got out that night because it turns out I had an open compound fracture which is like really has a high risk for infections. The helicopter landed in El Chalten, and from there, Rachel would be transported three hours over a bumpy dirt road to the hospital in El Calafate. But the army pilots spoke with the El Chalten locals, and unseen forces within the community continued to help. So they flew me to El Calafate. They called in, like, the local town doctor who was probably, like, sleeping because it was maybe around midnight. The communication was fairly non-existent, and... Like still had really didn't know what was happening to me or like the extent of my injuries and anything like that. And the doctor sewed up my open wound and I woke up the next morning with a pin through my ankle and it elevated into a like a rudimentary traction splint with uh, pink cans like hanging down as to act as weights so that they could try and get the bones to be in traction. And, and when I woke up, I was even more scared because like, like there was this like foreign looking equipment piece on my ankle and I was like stuck to the bed and I couldn't move and Anna had left to go make phone calls. So like I had the idea that I was going to rip the pin out of my ankle and start walking and to the airport. <laughs> Obviously that didn't happen. There was a really nice nurse who spoke some English and she called me down and eventually found out that... I had an open compound fracture of my tibia and fibula, um, and this hospital didn't have the necessary parts to do the proper surgery, and so I would await transport. I was in this traction splint for like four days, so like bed bound, like could not move for four days, and then they put a cast on my um, my leg from my hip to my foot, and they had to wait for like swelling to go down and whatnot. And uh, it turns out it's really difficult to leave the country with a broken leg. And there was a lot of like forms to be submitted to Buenos Aires. And like, finally, my parents got the consulate involved and he kind of sped things up. Anna stayed by her side for four days, helping to make phone calls to Rachel's parents and friends, washing Rachel's hair and helping pass the time before returning to El Chalten. Even though she was in a new place, 
Rachel was rooted in a community and effortlessly cared for by people she hadn't known the month before. A web of support surrounded her starting from the moment she was injured. Once the idea that I was going to be like carried out and rescued, once that all fell into place, it seemed like everyone kind of took on a different role. The Slovaks were like the techie people, like building the stretcher, like making it like badass. And the Colombians were kind of funny. And the American girls that I was climbing with were like more nurturing. And the American guys were like, the, co- the carriers <laughs> and so just everyone like participated there's so much teamwork with the the whole idea that everyone came together to just help me who some of them hadn't some of these people had never met before and the rest of the people I'd known for like two or three weeks was really powerful the local doctor in El Sheltan was on the helicopter this other guy Jesse like he offered to go with me to the hospital instead of Anna um, because his partner hadn't showed up and Anna was like no I'm going and like I mean I don't think anyone actually had to go with me but all along Anna was just like I'm going with you like we're climbing partners like this is what you do it was that that code of ethics that she had my mom refers to her as my guardian angel uh, who she just she just so selflessly like gave up her climbing ambitions and stay with me. I saw her last summer and I don't know, whenever I see her, I kind of, I, I feel like a strong connection to her, probably more so than she does for me. I think it's really telling of why one of the main reasons why people love this sport so much is the community, like all the people and the athletes and the characters, like you're kind of, you're connected in a lot of ways. That's a big part of why I like climbing, like from the community to like the connections you have with just your partner. Rachel ended up with a rod in her fibula, a plate in her tibia, and nine screws around the fracture site. The plate and screws were removed in 2010, and she's back to climbing, skiing, and running. She recently returned from Denali, where she guides in the summer. It's the premiere of 23 feet, and when we look out in the crowd right now, we see, I don't know, gosh, 100 people, 120 people at least, all sitting in their camp chairs, on the ground, on sleeping pads, on crash pads. We got our new Belgian beer out, people are just talking, loving, smiling, and they're waiting for an outdoor film. The sun is going down, and... It's so amazing to look out in the crowd and see familiar faces, but also see so many people you don't know.
and it's so scary as a filmmaker to know if anyone will show up and they're all here it's a huge turnout it does it's just crazy and someone just rolled up with a full-size couch oh my god that's awesome I can't believe this is it, it bowls me over it's it looks it looks beautiful <laughs> we're rolling this is Ali Bombach she recorded this moment just before the premiere of her film 23 feet it was a moment she'd spent over a year creating. She'd traveled, she'd filmed, she'd edited, she'd promoted, and she'd even figured out how to pay for it all. All to capture the spirit of a community. Uh, 23 Feet is a film about people who live really simply to do the things that they love in the outdoors. You know, if you are following your passion and it's exactly what you want to do, then everything else will turn out fine. It's just that fear of that first step of actually taking that step to follow your passion. Ali exudes enthusiasm and passion for her work, for filmmaking, for the outdoors, for life. She wholeheartedly believes in making leaps. But the genesis of 23 Feet wasn't a single moment. It came after a series of steps and setbacks that motivated her to become a trailer dweller. At 24, she was living in Durango, Colorado, but figuring out the economic realities of moving to a new city and running her business, Red Real Media. Well, I knew I wanted to move to Portland. And when I started to look into rental houses and all these different things out there, it just didn't make sense because I was traveling so much for, you know, videography anyway with my, with my business. So I was traveling all the time and actually met a few people that had, um, you know, I met Nick with his bus and I met... Uh, Shannon and Jimmy Sabara and their sprinter van and I was like oh you're you're doing this you're living on the road you're just doing your business from the road and I think that was a bigger deal like you know it's like a business from the road and it just made a lot of sense so I I you know I took it and I went full force and I, I kind of go over the top when I get an idea I, I was so excited I you know, researched Airstreams. I was like, this is it. I, I Airstreams the one that's going to be mine, my, my fit. And so I found one in Boulder and I bought a veggie diesel truck that was an F-350. It was huge. It had got balls bumper sticker on the back and it said wild beast on the side. Like I shit you not. It was said wild beast. And, um, its name was like some manly awful name, but I decided to call it Elvira. And I think that was the worst idea ever because I think you should never rename something if it already has a name because then I got the vengeance of the truck, right? Like the truck, we picked up the Airstream. I bought the Airstream and then I'm 11 miles outside of Boulder and the truck blows up and then the truck was gone. And then I had a, to tow the Airstream to a storage place and I was stuck in Boulder for two months like trying to figure out this truck and get a new engine. I had a whole new engine put in but it was a roadside mechanic. He ends up being a total um, scumball and puts a bad engine in it. Drive around for five minutes, and then it, it like that one like explodes as well. <laughs> well, it didn't explode, but it just pootered out. And I sold the truck for parts. I had a thousand bucks in my pocket. Allie ended up spending two months in Boulder working, making the last of her cash last as long as possible. When friends from Durango decided they would attend the Five Point Film Festival, she hitched a ride from Boulder to Carbondale, knowing she could make it back to Durango from there. And I had a blast with 
a whole group of people who knew what I was talking about. You know, at that point, you feel so alone when you're in this shit show of a, a situation where you're derping, bagging on somebody's couch. But I had so many people at Five Point that like knew what I was talking about. They're like, oh, when I was on the road and like telling me their own stories. And it was so cool that they totally related with what I, what I had gone through. And so, and then it just, at one point during that film festival, someone was like, you need to make a film about, you know, other people that have done this kind of stuff and kind of thought about making a film, but it was kind of a, a scary idea, but I had nothing at that point. So I went home, sold all my stuff, drove my 400 that I had to Santa Fe, got my stepdad to come up to Boulder and pick up the Airstream. We renovated the Airstream. I got sponsorship. I, and I set out on the road with two friends and being like, we're going to find this community that I know is out there. I found it at Five Point, and I know it's out there still. If finding a community is difficult within the confines of a city or a town, it's even more difficult when it's an amorphous group without a central location. You know, we didn't know exactly where we were going, and we were just setting places up as we went. So that was a lot of stress. Like, are we going to be able to find anyone here? You know, we drove through at the worst time of year. We were in Las Vegas in the middle of July, and it was like death. <laughs> and there was nobody climbing at Red Rocks. Red Rocks is closed in the middle of July. And, you know, money was really, really tight. So we were, you know, not doing many fun things. I mean, I mean, we were having a lot of fun, but we weren't. You know, when we went to San Francisco, we weren't going out to eat. We weren't, every time we pulled in somewhere, we got the bikes off the back of the truck, and we weren't driving anywhere unless it was um, to our next sleeping spot. We were biking or walking everywhere, and that, that, was a, that got pretty exhausting, especially with filming and you're carrying around all this gear. But Ali made it work. In Tuolumne Meadows, they serendipitously camped next to climbing legend Ron Kauk. They interviewed him. Meeting one person would open the door to meeting another. After a month of filming on the road, Ali and her Airstream Roma made it to Portland. She parked in the driveway of a friend and started editing. The film was bigger than anything she'd worked on before, with multiple storylines and characters she'd develop a connection to. And at times, this made it difficult to see the bigger vision. Money was tight, and so she had to work other gigs as a videographer and try to finance the film through Kickstarter. It was hard to, for me to pitch it because it was like, you know, I was asking for money from sponsors as well. So I just felt I was kind of weirded out by the whole Kickstarter thing. I didn't push it very hard, but it failed miserably. I got, I made like 500 bucks out of 5,000. It was really a bad failure. And the thing with Kickstarter is it's on there forever. Like once you fail, anytime someone Googles your name, it's like Ali Bombach failure. <laughs> it's awful. My vehicle's shaking my eyes, awakened as the brakes begin to whine. It's the third time tonight. Setback pushed Allie harder to finish the edit. She made a trailer, and then she reached out to friends, and friends of friends, and people she met on the road to help promote the film. And as the movie neared its completion, Allie began thinking about how she was going to show it to people. She had this idea. She would meld her desire to bring film to small communities and her love of outdoor screenings, and voila, the 23 Feet Outdoor Tour was born. She would revisit the places she'd gone to make the movie. Once we finished the film and told everyone about the tour, 
and everyone heard about the film in that way, the Kickstarter, you know, we got 220% of our goal. It's one thing to have one marketing manager at a company say, you know, yeah, we believe in what we're doing and we're going to help you out. And that feels really good. But it's a whole other thing to have, you know, 250 strangers be like, I believe in what you're doing and I'm going to give my own personal money. Buoyed by the support of the community, Ali and her business partner, Sarah Menzies, laid out a month-long tour. As supporters and people within the outdoor community saw that the tour was becoming a reality, they wanted it to come to their own cities and towns. So Ali and Sarah added a few more shows, and then a few more. Now the tour has grown into a four-month road trip with more than 30 screenings all over the West. People drive two hours or plan their road trips to intersect the trailer transformed to an outdoor theater venue. 23 Feet has captured the spirit of a community and those that surround it. And that community has come out to support Ali and Force. We've gotten a few different reactions. It's either people who have been following us and come out and they're like, hey, I'm here. And it's almost like we're coming up and giving them hugs. And it's like, it's so good to finally meet you. <laughs> it's that. And it's like, they're proud of us. And that's the, that's the coolest feeling. And then we have people who have, who heard of it during, you know, us marketing or a poster or something, and they come out and they don't really know what to expect. And afterwards, people will come up and be like, I had no idea what was going to happen, and I feel so lucky I am here. One, one that I really remember, and it was so cool, was a 75-year-old woman. And we were showing in Flagstaff, and she came up to me, and she's like, it's my birthday. <laughs> That's the first thing she said. And I was like, happy birthday. And she's like, I've been living on the road in this way for 30 years, and you just made me so proud of myself. And I, was, I started crying instantly. It was the coolest thing to hear her say that as someone who's, you know, generations above me she was just like you made me feel so proud of myself and that was it knocked me over <laughs> I was done <laughs> what I didn't realize when I started the film and it's more of a universal theme than I give it credit for you know it's not we're not just talking about one small group of people you know somewhere deep inside you everyone has this feeling of like they just want to go out and for a full year all they want to do is fish. So everyone has their one thing that they want to do. Well, it was a quote that we used, so I have it on a sticky note. I believe in travel and I believe in community. I hope to keep them both. A life of travel isn't about being alone and a life of community isn't about staying in the same place for forever. If you really believe in travel, it doesn't mean that you can't have community. And I think that's what 23 Feet started as. It's like just searching for that. And yeah, I think that was a big part of it because we didn't know who we were going to find or who we were going to meet or run into. And we just knew it was out there. And it was like we were already in the same community. I didn't really feel like I had a community before I left. And I think a, a big part of 23 Feet has made me realize that I do have one. 
and it's definitely a, not one that you can put your finger on. <laughs> but that's, I think that's one of the best parts about it. Allie and Sarah are on the road for the next month. Find them on Facebook at 23 Feet to find out where they'll be next, or maybe convince them to come to your own town. After the tour, Allie's on a whirlwind journey with her camera for the next three months. In Rachel's story, she makes a reference to a strong American guy named Jesse. That's Jesse Huey, and you may remember him from the horrible bike commute gone wrong in Three Types of Fun. Jesse also helped me out this spring when I ended up double booked. He stepped up to rig on El Cap, and make the finale of the upcoming season two possible. How's that for community? Music today by Fake Babies, This Will Destroy You, Bradley Carter, Seth Geiler, and Serquette DeYou. You can download the cuts on our website, www.dirtbagdiaries.com. You can also find a link there to the Dirtbag Diaries group on Facebook. Join us in the discussion. Support comes from Patagonia. They've released their third volume of benefit tracks with songs from Drive-By Truckers, Medeski Martin Wood, and Devotchka. Buy a single or the album and support environmental groups. Go to patagonia.com music for more information. Support also comes from Kuat Racks. This small startup company loves bikes and making a better bike rack. They're small, but dream big. If you need a new rack, check them out online at kuatracks.com. Support for the show also comes from New Belgium Brewing. We're taking a mini break in August while we're out enjoying summer adventures, but we'll be back in September. Keep an eye out for the Season 2 trailer. It's so on. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.